Hey everybody, welcome to a new episode of Wander. Yeah, this one's an interesting one to me uh, because I think it's one that we all kind of get caught with from time to time in different ways um, that we don't really even notice. It's all about obesity and how we can... One, one, one of the things about is how tough we can be on obese people. And two, it's just how complex the solution to obesity is. And today I talked to, um, her name is Jimena Romo-Salas. She is uh, the executive director of Obesity Canada. And she's working with that organization to change our perceptions of obesity. You know, it's not as simple as just saying, well, eat less, work out more, and all your problems will be solved. Why can't you do that? Yeah. That's really what the discussion is about today. She's incredibly uh, intelligent and sweet, and it was a really fun conversation. So I hope you can get past the like first five minutes where there's a little bit of typing in the background, uh, but we solved that issue, and I had a great conversation. So enjoy the podcast. Let me know your thoughts. Let me know your thoughts on the Facebook page. Send me an email. I always want to get feedback. I like feedback because um, I want to make the podcast better and I want to know what other people's perceptions are because I can only ask the questions that I think of, but I want to know what you think of what you hear. So let me know. Anyway, here it is. Welcome to Wander with Andrew Wilcox. So my name is Jimena Ramos-Salas, and I'm the executive director of Obesity Canada. Uh, Obesity Canada is a not-for-profit registered charity based in Edmonton, Alberta, and we're actually hosted by the University of Alberta, And uh, but we're a national organization, so we have members across the country as well as international members. Uh, and the members are people who are either doing research or are working in healthcare or in industry uh, in the field of obesity. And uh, the initial idea of Obesity Canada was um, that we wanted to break down some silos that were happening in the field of obesity. You know, So you would have researchers working in nutrition, going to their own nutrition conferences, and you would have re- researchers working in physical activity, going to their own conferences, mm-hmm. and then geneticists meeting in their own. And so we wanted to bring everybody who's working in obesity research together to tr- try to create more collaborations between researchers to try to find better solutions to obesity. And so we got a grant uh, in 2006 from the federal government, from Industry Canada. It was a, a Networks of Centers of Excellence grant. And the idea was exactly that. Bring together the community of obesity researchers and healthcare professionals and try to translate the science that we have in obesity to healthcare pr- practitioners as well as to policymakers. And my background as I came into the organization was that I used to, I've always been interested in disease prevention. So health promotion and how do we promote healthy living, et cetera. So I have a bachelor's in kinesiology and a master's in health promotion. And then recently I just finished my doctorate in health promotion. And when I started working for Obesity Canada, I I had just finished my master's in health promotion. And my thesis was exploring how newcomers, people who come from other areas of the world, 
to move to Canada, how them, how they, after 10 years of living in Canada, usually tend to gain a lot of weight mm-hmm. and can become uh, at risk for obesity or develop obesity uh, within 10 years of living in Canada. And so I wanted to explore why that was happening, why uh, when Canadian uh, newcomers come to Canada, they come um, healthy and very, you know, motivated to live in a new country, but then within 10 years, their health deteriorates significantly. And I found that obesity was a key risk factor to their health deteriorating. And of course, you know, um, as a health promotion uh, researcher, I was looking at all the factors that lead to obesity, the social as well as the cultural mm-hmm. factors, as well as the genetics and biological factors. And what I discovered with newcomers was that, you know, coming to Canada, it wasn't just about the lifestyle change. It was also about the stress that immigrants face when they move to a new country and how difficult it is to integrate into a society, difficult to learn the language, difficulties finding a job. And that creates a lot of social stress and personal stress that can actually increase risk for obesity. So it wasn't just that they were not eating the same foods and not moving as much as they were doing in their countries. Uh, that changed for sure. Yeah. But it was also the stress that people experienced by moving to a different country. So my background is really uh, in health promotion, and I like to explore all the social uh, as well as the cultural and physical and environmental factors that lead to obesity. And I've always understood that obesity was a very complex disease. However, in none of my background, so I'm originally from Chile. I moved to Sweden as a, as a refugee uh, when I was 10 years old and grew up in Sweden in a, um, a very healthy country. I had um, lots of family support and social support here in Sweden. And then um, I, I was always worried that, you know, um, not everybody has the same health level. So there's a lot of inequalities in our society. And when I moved to Canada, that became even more of a concern. I could see social disparities and health disparities a lot more than I could see them in Sweden. Um, and so I wanted to find out what what's going on. So that's, I'm always really, really interested in that, the social disparities, the social issues. So that can kind of set you, explain my bias. Like that's the lens that I yeah. wear. Uh, when I talk about obesity, um, that I am a social scientist, I think about things in a broader way. So I guess that explains my background. I am yeah. a social scientist. I have a background. But one of the things that I wanted to point out with my education is, yes, I have all these degrees. But throughout my uh, my education, and in Sweden, I studied nursing. So I went from nursing to kinesiology to health promotion. In none of these education programs, did I ever get training on obesity? You know, like you, I was taught that obesity is a risk factor and mm-hmm. obesity is bad for you um, and that we need to prevent it. But there was never any science about obesity in any of the courses that I took. I never um, got to understand what causes obesity. And um, throughout my training, I have to say, a lot of the narrative that I that I heard in my degrees and in my education was that obesity is all about eating less and moving more, and that um, we just need to tell people and educate people that uh, healthy eating is important and that having a healthy weight is important, and, and that we can prevent obesity by simply eating healthily, healthy regularly, and moderate meals and moving and exercising more. And I really believe that. 
as an exercise physiologist, as a kinesiologist, I really thought that that was my job to go out there to the world and tell people to exercise and yeah. to be healthy. And so it's kind of, I was kind of like a little bit of, uh, I'm older now and I'm much more wise, but back then I was like, oh, of course everybody needs to exercise and eat healthy. Like this is easy. Yeah. Let's just go out there and, and promote healthy living to everybody. And um, I just, slowly I realized that there's a lot more issues behind obesity. And as I mentioned, the my master's uh, degree um, thesis about immigrants and their experiences with obesity uh, opened my eyes to the fact that this is much more complex. Yeah, and I think that there is a, there is a certain group of people that think when they see an obese person, that's the first thing that comes to their mind. They go, well, they just need to get told to get out there and do some exercise and go for a run and eat better and they'll just be fine. Like, why don't they yeah. just do that? <laughs> like, yeah. And, and, yeah. and you'll get told that through your life. And one thing I noticed on your website was a lot of it starts in the family. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, I, I wonder with that, if it's a lot of, um, because there's genetic factors, if that is, is family members who've experienced uh, discrimination because of obesity, um, putting a lot of pressure on their children to not go through the same situations that they have. Does yeah. that happen a lot? Yeah. So there's, you know, obviously we, we have a lot of science now and we know that, you know, weight is very much genetic, mm -hmm. right? So if you have parents that have um, excess weight or overweight, uh, uh, children are more likely to have that as well. It's just like if you have tall parents, you're going to be tall. Be tall. Yeah. So it's the same issue. Um, and then uh, because of the bias that we have in our society, yes, parents are always very worried that their children um, are going to be bullied or have health problems because of their excess weight. And um, from my experience in my PhD, I interviewed a lot of people living with obesity, and I talked to them about their experiences with weight bias. And some of the weight bias, and I would say a lot of it, came from their families and their mm -hmm. uh, parents and their sisters, siblings, um, grandparents who um, who intended well, yeah. but were worried about them and would tell them, you know, uh, you need to lose weight, uh, you need to stop eating. Um, and, you know, I heard stories from, par uh, from people that said that their moms put them on a diet when they were seven years old. Yeah. Right. And I heard stories from um, people telling me that their grandparents used to bribe them to say, you know, like, if you don't eat dinner today, I will give you 10 bucks, mm. you know, uh, because oh, they wanted them to lose weight, you know, like um, and parents do this from uh, and families do this from a um, well-meaning yeah. uh, way. But then there was also a lot of not so well-meaning uh, comments and messages from their families, right? There was a lot of jokes about fat jokes, a lot about a lot of um, comments about their bodies and their beautiful, their um, their beauty. Uh, you know, comparing their bodies to somebody who's ugly. You know, making very um, uh, hurtful comments. That when you're a child, if you listen to and you hear these comments from your own family um, and from your friends or peers. Um, it creates kind of like a scar in yeah. your in your soul, right? And and then you grow up thinking that you're not normal and that you need to change, um, and that everybody else is telling you what to do, 
but somehow because you cannot change and your weight is not going down, you're a failure. And um, this sense of feeling that it's my fault and everybody else knows what to do and they're doing it because they're not getting obesity. Um, I'm the one who has obesity in my family, so there must be something wrong with me or I'm too lazy. I'm, you know, like I'm not, I don't have the willpower. And that self-stigma actually creates worse problems psychologically, physically, um, um, as well, right? So people start believing that this is their fault. And this is what we called internalized weight yeah. bias. Well, right? and, and I think I think that people just sometimes forget that each person's body is different. Like, you, you know, f- the physicality of each person is different. What it would take for one person to stay thin is not even close to what it would take for another person to stay thin or to lose weight. Because uh, losing weight takes so much more work than maintaining weight, it seems to me, though, as yeah. well, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, well, science shows that, you know, um, there's lots, as you know, the weight loss industry is like a $50 billion industry Mm. in North America. And um, uh, there's lots of diets and lots of programs out there trying to promote weight loss. And people who try these programs, they lose weight. And it's relatively easy if you stick to the program, uh, to the diets. But whether or not you can sustain those programs in the long term, that's where the problem comes in, right? So although we have ways to help people lose weight, the problem is trying to keep the weight off and maintaining that weight loss over the long term. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a lot of issues that happen in the body that resist weight loss. So initially you might lose, even patients who have bariatric surgery, they might lose a lot of weight initially, but then slowly the weight loss starts being less and less. And then uh, a lot of patients, I would say, uh, we don't have the exact science on it, but uh, from a clinical perspective, we see that, you know, almost 90% of people will gain some weight back. And a lot of people who have had bariatric surgery uh, will gain all of it back. So not even bariatric surgery, which is one of our standard uh, kind of like gold standards of obesity treatments is a cure for obesity. Yeah. We don't have a cure. We don't have effective treatments that work for everybody because like what you said, everybody's so different. Everybody's bodies is so different and the treatment responses will vary from person to person. And well, so whether you put somebody on a low calorie diet or uh, you put somebody on bariatric surgery, they will lose different amounts of weights. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Well, yeah, everybody's everybody's different. And we don't, and our problem is, is we try to say that the mold is essentially one or two things, right? A woman is supposed to look like this or this. A man is supposed to look like this or this. And that's it. So we're all supposed yeah. to be aiming for that instead of aiming yeah. for healthy, which beces really uh, problematic. Right. That's, yeah. that's where the issues come in. Like we all come in different sizes and shapes. Yeah. And there is no, uh, which was one of my um, points coming out of my thesis for my PhD was that in public health, you know, I reviewed all public health policies across the country from all provinces and territories to look at what is the narrative that we use in public health about obesity. And the main narrative is that obesity can be prevented by eating healthy and exercising and that there is a healthy body weight and that that healthy body weight is a BMI of, you know, 
below 25, you know, like below, between below 30. And, um, you know, the fact is that people can be healthy at different BMIs, right? And BMI is body mass index, which is really a measurement that we use for scientific studies at the population level. Um, But it's not a tool that we use to diagnose people with obesity, right? Like it's just... You know, we pull people, this this is kind of a number that we use to group people that are of a specific size, but the BMI number doesn't tell you whether that person has obesity or not. And it doesn't tell you whether a person um, is having any health issues related to their size. It's well, like a clothing size, basically. Yeah, and, and people can be very tiny and very unhealthy, physically unhealthy. Yeah, you know. they could be smoking a pack a day. Yeah. And you don't. Well, and also, right? but like, just unfit when it comes to their, um, you know, uh, fat content to body size, right? You can still be unhealthy and be small. Yeah. 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 Um, Like I'm sure you know somebody who can eat whatever they want, (laughs) everything they want and not gain weight. Oh, those were beautiful days. I'll tell you that. (laughs) Oh, I loved those days. Oh, I used to be able to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Up until uh, 21 years old, I could eat absolutely anything and it didn't matter. Buckets of sugar, pizzas. We'd have competitions. Um, I used to work at a fast food restaurant. We'd have competitions to see what most ridiculous thing we could build and then eat. Like we would get like an eight patty uh, quarter pounder, which is like an entire pound of beef. And then we would see how fast we could eat it. And like that would be no problem, and I would wow. main- and I would maintain a weight of six foot one and one hundred and fifty six pounds, which was just thin. And then all of that went out the window in the mid twenties, and mm-hmm. now I have to watch my weight. I have to do that. One of the most depressing when you talk about BMI size. One of the saddest moments for me was when I was at the doctor's and I looked at my BMI, mm-hmm. and I sat in the obesity range, which I didn't think I was in, mm-hmm. and my optimal weight was something that I hadn't seen since about 24 years old. So now in my mid thirties, I'm going, that's not even possible for me. So thankfully my doctor was very uh, great about it. And he was like, yeah, you don't want to be fighting for that. You're because body shape, he's like, you're, you're not going to hit 185 pounds again. You know, Mm -hmm. he's like, you just, that's not going to happen. You know, he said to me, he's like, lose 20 to 30 and you'll be doing okay. And thankfully I've lost 15. So, you know, I'm working, working towards that. Um, but that's where we get this this misconception. That's where the weight bias comes in. That's where uh, the I think the social issues and the and the and the mental issues come in for a lot of people. That they go, I just it's going to be completely unattainable for me to ever look like this, you know, yeah. like Jennifer it's, uh, Garner. It's just because it's the the weight bias affects everybody, right? It's not just women. It's yeah. not just you know. Uh, it, it affects men as well. Um, there's a lot of social pressure to look a certain way yeah. and to, and that if you look this way, that means that you're healthy and you're successful and you have willpower, you are disciplined and, uh, hardworking, right? Yeah. But if you don't look that way and your body is bigger then all the stereotypes that we have associated with that is that, you know, obviously you're not working hard enough. Yeah. Because if you were, then you would be smaller. Uh, obviously, you don't have the willpower. You're lazy. 
uh, you're somehow stupid, you don't get it, you don't, you do, you, you don't want to help yourself. Yeah. All these negative stereotypes that we have about people living with obesity actually have very, very bad consequences for people, Absolutely. right? Because it's not that they only they internalize it and they believe it's bad, that they're bad people. It's that people treat them differently, yep. right? And so if you're at the workplace and you're up for a promotion with somebody, fighting for a promotion, with competing with somebody else, very likely if you have obesity, you're not going to get that promotion and somebody else who doesn't have obesity will get it because of the stereotypes that HR people may have and your boss may have. Yeah, because you're perceived as, well, clearly they, you know, don't have the discipline to, you know, yeah. they don't have the discipline to work out. How would they possibly have the discipline to meet deadlines? Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. As, as though and those two like, things are mutually exclusive. It's kind of like we think that a body shape is the equivalent of not only health but intelligence and yeah. um, moral character. And, you know, uh, that's just very ingrained in our society. Like, uh, it, everybody has it. And I think it, from the Everybody Matters Collaborative, which we have, it's a team of obesity researchers and weight bias researchers in Canada. That's one of the things that we need to work on is that we need to bring awareness about the fact that everybody has weight bias because we live in a very weight biased society. Yeah. And so if you're not aware of it, uh, you can't really do anything about it. But once you become aware of it, like when I started doing this research, uh, I now I see weight bias everywhere, like yeah. on TV, like oh, when I go constant. to the doctor, <laughs> everywhere. It's constant. The minute you watch a, a biography movie and you see the actors who play in that biography movie and then they always show that picture of what the person really looks like. If the person's larger in life at all, they're played by a much thinner person in the film. Always. Yep. Like it almost yep. seems like every time it's always a much thinner person in the film. Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And it, it, yeah. also the cartoon, have you noticed the movies, like even kids movies, the evil characters in cartoons is always the big cartoon, cartoon oh, yeah. person, like, uh, the character, uh, or the ugly person or the funny person is always the big character. Like, yeah. so it's, it starts very young. And in fact, one of the studies that one of the oldest studies we have on weight bias uh, they took kids um, that were young, as young as three years old, and they asked, they put a picture in front of them of different kids with different body shapes and disabilities and different traits, um, and they asked the children to pick who they wanted to be friends with, yeah. and the majority of the children picked uh, the kid who had a larger body last. Yeah. So they would rather huh. be friends with somebody who was in a wheelchair, for example, than the person, the kid who had obesity. So it starts very young uh, because it's everywhere. It's yeah. in our families. It's in the movies. It's in the books we read. Uh, you know, it's it's everywhere. And so if we don't question it, if we don't talk about it, we're never going to really change it. Is there anything biological there or is it all societal? I don't think we have had any, you know, I, I mean, the brain makes these associations um, that, um, you know, we affiliate, we associate words and characters we learn, like our brain learns. So I think yeah. it's mostly environmental and 
social and it's a learned behavior um, because and the reason why I think it's mostly learned behavior is because uh, our interventions to reduce weight bias focus mostly on education and if you educate somebody about the causes of obesity the complex causes of obesity we're able to change beliefs about obesity and that actually reduces weight bias so yeah. I think it's that misunderstanding, misconception of obesity that we have. And I think, I don't think we're born with biased. Well, I uh, think, biased. I think we, we've seen examples throughout history of how um, different weights have been viewed differently. Like if you look at paintings of women in the yeah. you know, 1500s, yeah. they were larger. Uh, yeah. They were still viewed as beautiful. In fact, they were the pinnacle of beauty. There's different groups that have seen uh, larger women as, as mm-hmm. sexier and, uh, and and more beautiful. I think I think we're at the uh, our North American bias is probably the least healthy when uh, mm-hmm. all of the you know all of the models are just not realistic. healthy people. They're not realistic people. Like, not- you're literally searching for a group. an individual that's um, a size that's just not average by any stretch, like just not even close. Um, And then those people, models then uh, have their own issues when they become, you know, what they're, the only thing that they matter for then becomes that weight, that size, that weight, that size that odds are they're not going to be able to keep for the rest of their lives. So their career that they've chosen is over in their, for most of them in their mid twenties, if not, you know, 30 years old, they're done. Right. So it's not a healthy way for any of us to look at, uh, you know, how our clothes should fit, what we should look like the, none of that's achievable for any of us. Um, when you talk of weight bias, is that mostly obesity or is underweight something that you guys look at as well? Those people that, uh, you know, are just chronically underweight and have been treated away because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, uh, Obesity Canada is focused on the bias that people with obesity experience. Yeah. But, um, we also recognize that there is a bias um, um, against people who live in smaller bodies as well. Um, yeah. And... There's a lot of research in that area. That's not my expertise. Yeah. But um, one of the things that we were working on with last year was um, a group of activists um, in Canada were trying to change the Human Rights Act uh, in Manitoba uh, to try to protect against size discrimination. So, Absolutely. you know, so size is not obesity, right? Yeah. But because people with obesity uh, have larger body size, we supported those efforts because uh, it overlaps with obesity. Um, but, you know, they were arguing that, you know, you shouldn't be discriminated in the workplace or in education or in the healthcare system because of your size. And they looked at size from both from both, both ends, like larger and smaller as well. So it doesn't matter if you're short, tall, big, you know, small, you should be treated with respect uh, like any other Canadian regard just like we in the Human Rights Act we have protections against you know racism and ageism they just wanted to add this sizeism component yeah. uh, to the Human Rights Act it didn't get passed uh, in Manitoba and I think they're still pushing for it um, and we are very supportive of it because um, we realize that a lot of the persons living with obesity that we work with they experience 
extensive oh, discrimination in the workplace, in the healthcare system. You know, I've heard horrible, horrible stories about people going to a hospital and not being able to have their blood pressure measured or having an MRI or getting some specific treatment because of their body size. Because their size. Yeah. And that's not okay, right? Like if you're a Canadian citizen and you work and you pay taxes and you're um, an individual that can, you know, lives in our society, everybody should be able to have health care. And uh, it's not okay for somebody to be denied health care because of their size. And uh, do you think that all of these uh, weight bias issues that we've talked about, do they persist in the healthcare system as well? Yeah, they're, they're, they're very pervasive in the healthcare system. I mean, it's um, uh, most of the studies that we have is measuring weight bias in, in the healthcare system amongst healthcare professionals, you know, like amongst doctors, nurses, dietitians, psychologists, you name it, everybody has weight bias. Yeah, um, yeah. And, even even hospital administrators, HR um, uh, people who work in hospitals, uh, it's very very pervasive, um, and, and that has deep consequences for healthcare practice. So, uh, for example, doctors nurses will spend less time with patients living with obesity. Yeah. Um, uh, nurses and uh, they think that patients living with obesity are gross and they don't want to touch them. Um, uh, that they're, you know, smelly and lazy and all these stereotypes are deeply ingrained in the healthcare professionals as well. Or they put themselves and, in this situation. Yeah, that yeah. They put them, like, this is their fault. You're obviously in here with a health problem because you're fat and you, yeah. you know, you feel, you feel less empathy for somebody if you're, if that's the way that you're looking at them. Right? Yeah, so if imagine this is if you come into the emergency room because you were in a car accident. Yeah. It wasn't your fault. No. Um, but because you have a larger body, um, the nurses will treat you differently than yeah. somebody who was in a car accident that wasn't in a larger body. Um, they they will not only treat you differently, they will make you feel bad about your size. And uh, then, you know, the, the consequence is that people with obesity will avoid the healthcare system at all costs, right? Like, so that has consequences for their health. So if they think they're gonna be shamed and blamed by their doctor or their nurse, um, they're not going to go for a preventative screening test like cancer screening or, um, you know, like breast cancer screenings because they don't want to be shamed. And that means that they're not doing those pre-screenings and maybe they will develop cancer without us knowing and they'll go untreated with diseases that should have been screened. Well, I think one that must be big and you, you would know um, is just the extent of obesity would be increased by not dealing with it earlier on because of the shame. Yeah. You know, you start off with, I don't want to go to the doctor because I'm getting larger. Um, Mm -hmm. And then it just gets worse. And then you end up, you know, you're one of those people on the 600 pound life show. And then, then the, the, the mountain that you have to climb to get out of this situation Mm -hmm. is just extensive. Like you, you know, in Canada, we have about, you know, it's a lot of people, you know, like, almost 10% of people with severe obesity. Uh, and there's people wow. that you don't see out on the street, right? Like you don't see them because they can't get up. Yeah. There, there's people who are uh, lying in long-term care facilities because not, they cannot be discharged to their home because they cannot receive home care. Um, there's people, you know, who are not, have never been on an airplane 
right? And never been able to visit somebody and their family member because they can't get on the plane. And there's so many, you know, those are like the severe obesity cases and examples, but it still matters because everybody matters. You know, it doesn't matter if you, if you're, you know, weigh 500 pounds or 200 pounds, you should be able to live a good quality of life and you should be able to get good healthcare and you should be able to feel that you're treated with dignity and respect by your doctor and, um, and that you, that you can find evidence-based care. So right now, Obesity Canada's um, data shows that getting treatment for obesity is almost impossible in our country, right? Like it's very, very difficult. Like some people are waiting for bariatric surgery for three, six years. Really? And some people are dying waiting for bariatric surgery. Because people are looking at it as, as almost a cosmetic thing. Yeah, and is, is, the, is that a perception? bariatric surgery, we don't have enough bariatric surgeons in the country. Um, uh, there's not enough OR time to mm-hmm. have bariatric surgery um, in the system. Um, most provinces don't even have a bariatric surgery program. Uh, so Alberta, Ontario, BC, and Quebec, they're, they're the provinces that, have, that do the most surgeries for bariatric patients. But um, in other provinces, there's nothing, and people have to go out of the province to Wow. Uh, going a wait time, wait time, uh, wait list somewhere else, and that's difficult. Um, and if you're living in a home, if you're stuck at home and you can't move, how are you gonna ever find access to something? But for us as a society, it's better for us to give this treatment early on. Would yeah, you know? I, I definitely believe so. Um, I mean, from a prevention side. Obesity prevention is important. Just like if you think about diabetes, yeah. we do prevention and treatment. You know, we try to prevent diabetes. We have a lot of prevention efforts out there. Um, or cancer, we do cancer prevention. We do hypertension prevention. Yeah. In obesity, uh, we talk a lot about prevention, and that prevention aspect is usually distilled down to let's t- teach people to eat healthy and exercise, yeah. and that's the prevention we do. Um, but you know, if you think about that, healthy eating and exercising is generally good for any chronic disease prevention. That prevents diabetes, it prevents cancer, it prevents hypertension, stroke, cardiovascular diseases. So eating less, eating healthy, and moving more is healthy. It's helpful for everybody. Everybody in Canada, everybody in the world should be exercising more and eating healthy. It's not an obesity prevention strategy. Yeah. It's a chronic disease prevention strategy. So our narrative in, in the country right now is that we just need to prevent obesity by telling people to eat less and move more. Yeah. And that has not worked. No. And and then the consequence of that is that we don't talk about treatment. So we will never have a diabetes strategy that only has treatment or management. We need to do both, prevention and treatment. Yeah. And so what happens to the 5.5 million Canadians that already have obesity? They need treatments. So sure, we can do prevention and it should be more than teaching people to eat healthy and exercise for that matter. But we should be doing prevention, but we should also be doing management and treatment and rehabilitation and helping people across the lifespan. One thing I saw on your website is that, um, and is it Health Canada that now classifies obesity as a chronic disease? Uh, well, Obesity Canada does, and the Canadian Medical Association. Canadian Medical Association. Obesity okay. as a disease. And the WHO, the World Health Organization, declared obesity as a disease in 1948. It's okay. been a disease in WHO for decades. But do you think that we're treating it as a, as a, 
as a country, as a society, as a chronic illness. No. No. We're treating it as a risk factor for other chronic illnesses. illnesses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, so it's seen as a symptom. If you have obesity, you're going to get diabetes. Yeah. If you have obesity, you're going to get cancer. But uh, we don't treat obesity as a disease itself. And that has major implications, right? Because people just think that um, obesity is not serious enough and that it's just a weight loss thing. But there are major consequences related to obesity. Um, uh, it's a disease that can have a lot of other comorbidities that are not diabetes and cancer or other chronic diseases. It has impact on your mobility, on your social health, on your psychological health. There's so many other issues that are affected by obesity that if you don't treat it, it's like, you know, it's kind of like I compare it to in the 80s when we were talking about HIV yeah. being um, people's fault because yeah. they were having unprotected sex. And so it was their fault and we don't need to treat it. Uh, we just need to give people condoms or teach them not to have unprotected sex. Yeah. And that's solved the HIV AIDS epidemic. Well, that didn't work. And so <laughs> no. then we realized actually it's a virus. So yeah. we need to treat it. And then we started doing research and we figured out that there's treatments and now people can live with HIV in a very good, healthy, good quality of life. Good quality of life, yeah. Um, one thing that definitely we kind of touched on that I've seen a lot in my life and I've seen what it does to people is people who, when they were younger, were very fit. But when they hit a certain age, uh, like mm -hmm. this happened to me slightly, but I've, I watched it happen to some other people rather extensively. When they're very fit as a young age and then something happens around 25, 24, they, where they could eat anything and then all of a sudden the metabolism is just gone. They become very large and you see that completely change their life. You see that... Yeah change their career path you see that change uh their want to be social their want to go to social gatherings their want to be seen by people that they knew in their younger days i've seen that happen to to people that i know and i think we underestimate the effect that that has to these people they be you know they could have you know they're they may have had aspirations for types of jobs where they had to be social and then all of a sudden it's, no, I don't want to because I don't want them to see me as this, you know, uh, both women and men uh, who have uh, seen go through this. And then I think for men, it's, I'm not sure if it's easier to talk about for men or women uh, because I think men are supposed to, oh, I'm just a big guy. I'm supposed mm -hmm. to just be a big man, you know, and I'll keep being a big man. And, uh but then, yeah, there's... you've raised a lot of very, very important issues there. There's a lot of unpacking there. Like, yeah. first of all, when we talk about obesity prevention in the government, we tend to focus on childhood obesity prevention. Yeah. So all the efforts are going into schools, changing the food environment, getting people more active, kids more active. And that's the prevention efforts that are mostly happening in around the world uh, by governments. But the point that you raise is that kids actually, you know, uh, the data that we have is that a lot of people develop obesity after childhood. Yeah. Like it's not during childhood. It's, uh, yes, some, obviously we have data that childhood obesity exists and it is a problem and we need to help people, children who have obesity as well. But the majority of people actually develop obesity later in life. Well, and uh, it happens, uh, there's different things that can trigger uh, obesity. For example, um, getting pregnant, you know, like uh, having a baby and not being able to lose the weight afterwards and then having another baby and then gaining more weight yeah. or um, 
losing somebody that you love and going into a depression, starting to take an antidepressive medication that causes weight gain, or you've been a high-performance athlete and all of a sudden you get an an accident and you can't compete anymore. And so now you're not exercising at the same level that you were before, but you're eating the same amounts and you develop obesity. Uh, Or you... You know, you experience some kind of trauma. So it, it can be there can be so many different reasons why people can develop obesity. It's not just this idea that people are eating too much and are not moving enough when they were children. Yeah. Uh, that's part of it, but it's not. It does not explain obesity well, in, but, at the population level. But I mean, we had structures, children as well. You know, we were moving a lot. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what kids go through today. I don't have children. But I know as a child, for me, I moved a ton when I was a kid and mm-hmm. ate fairly healthy. If it, I mean, it was a fairly traditional diet, so it wasn't very plant-based. But it was healthy because it was natural. Uh, and I know for me, when I was in school, we had a lot of sports. So I had a lot of sports. There was structure. I had a lot of good eating because my family made good meals. But as soon as you leave that whole structure, you go out on your own when you're in your 20s, you go to college, Mm -hmm. you don't have a ton of money, you don't have a ton of time, you completely change your eating habits. And then physically, that metabolism that used to be just a magical thing no longer is. That slows down for people. And then all of a sudden, one, you you don't cook like your family cooked. You don't work out or you don't have physical activity like you did with gym classes and and physic and and uh after school sports because you you didn't you know like when you say high performance athlete i was not a high performance athlete i was a medium performance athlete and so well but like you you're you're a medium performance athlete when you're a kid it's not something that you continue a ton in your rest of your life then so that goes out of the window so the amount of physical activity stressed in college sorry you were stressed in college, all the exams. Oh, yeah, period. the stress, everything, right? absolutely. Yeah, and, and you didn't make it to college-level sports, so you're not doing any of the sports, and you're not eating as you normally would. All of that comes together, and if you don't, you develop an unnatural habit, even if even if your habit was good when you were in, in, in as a kid. Yeah, so that's, the, I think the point of that is that it can happen to anybody. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. It doesn't mean that you have to have genetics. It doesn't mean that you have to experience a trauma. It doesn't mean that you have to, um, uh, you know, have some something happen to you that leads to obesity. It, you know, we know from for a fact that after we turn 20, our metabolism starts going down. You know, every decade or so it sort of slows down. So if you gain two pounds every year from your 20s and on. Yeah. Like it will take effort for you not to gain those 20 pounds, those two pounds, two pounds, two pounds a year. Yeah. It's two pounds is not that much. It's one kilogram, one kilogram a year. If you gain one kilogram a year for, you know, 10, 20 years, by the time you're like 40, you will have a lot of excess weight. Yeah. Right? So I think people think, oh, you know, most people gain a lot of weight very rapidly, but it can actually sneak in as well right like you know from your from the time you go start university you start gaining two pounds and two pounds every year and then by the time then you have kids and then you have family and you have stress and you know something happens everything compounds to uh, people developing obesity and i think that's one of the things that misconceptions that we we need to do more education out there that 
obesity is not an individual's fault um, and it is not weight is not entirely controllable by the individual there's a lot of uncontrollable factors that uh, mediate weight gain just like you cannot control how tall you're going to be um, there are there is a component of uncontrollability in obesity and weight gain um, and you, you know as a human person you're going to gain weight every year after your 20s because that's normal your body is a normal physiological response um, and so if you don't want to do that then that means that you have to prevent it and you have to exercise and you have to do an effort you have to eat healthy and try to prevent that waking right but if you have all this other stuff happening around your life and like you know how I started in my master's and I saw all these people coming from different different countries and you know having excited to be in a different country and living a better life and creating a better future um, most of immigrants work two or three jobs in the first 10 years yeah. before they reach their economic potential, right? And, um, you know, if you're working two or three jobs, how healthy can you eat? Uh, because eating healthy takes a lot of work and planning. Work. You know, like you should be eating three meals a day and it takes, you know, 20 minutes to, pl to make each meal. You know, that's like 60 minutes, you know, just planning and making your meals. And then you need to eat for half an hour. That's three hours now every day that you need to dedicate to eating and healthy eating and grocery shopping that you know all of that and most people some people don't have three hours to no. eat healthy well especially right? if you have kids too you got children on top yeah. of that well and i think one thing too with that is one of those two or three jobs is probably at a food joint that's not necessarily the healthiest food right so you're taking your free meal, employee meal or your cheaper employee yeah. meal and yeah. it's not healthy because you know a lot of uh newcomers end up working in those service industry jobs right. that are at, you know, Tim Hortons, you know. That's what happens if you yeah. don't, you know, like you come to a new country and it's very difficult to integrate. And if you don't speak English and you're driving a taxi all day or working in a fast food restaurant and um, and then, you know, you, you're trying to work and, and be happy and think about all these things, but sometimes it's beyond your control. And I think that's my, the social scientist in me that thinks, you know, we need to stop blaming people. Yeah. Um, but there is always a sense, there's always a component of individual responsibility. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. In, like in anything, right? So I don't deny the individual responsibility, but in obesity, we tend to put all the responsibility on the individual. The individual. It's like, it's yeah. up to you to eat healthy. It's up to you to... Uh, find treatments. Um, it's up to you to take care of yourself. We're, we we are not going to spend healthcare dollars on you because you're not worth it, um, because you did it to yourself. And uh, the healthcare budget is not big enough for to take care of you because you know you're not as important as, as a person who has diabetes or cancer or heart disease. That's the narrative that I think we need to change. Um, yeah. It's not that we're denying all individual responsibility. It's just that it's part of it, just like individual responsibility is part of diabetes care and cancer care, right? Like we all need to take responsibility for what we do and what we what we eat, uh, but it's not as easy as we we think it is. So, is there anything legally that needs to change? Do we need to change things when it comes to access of what we bring into the uh, into the food system here? Yeah, so there's a lot of people uh, working on food policies and policies at the government level to promote more healthy eating. Um, you know, uh, Health Canada just released the new food guide 
Um, they're working on a front of packaging labeling strategy to help Canadians figure out what's healthy and not healthy. Uh, they're doing a lot of education and healthy eating strategies across the country to help people. But it's it's not just education, it's policies, right? We need to change the way um, you know, food is available to children and families. Uh, we need to start eating more fresh food and fresh vegetables. So how do we make those uh, foods more available? You know, how do we make sure that people in the north have access to fresh vegetables and fruits? You know, uh, and uh, that, those are policies that need to change, right? Like we need to make healthy food less expensive and more affordable and more available to people. And right now, you know, it can be very expensive to eat healthy, um, especially Absolutely. if you live in the northern communities where there's no access to um, wow. fresh foods. Yeah, when you talk about places like Fort Chippewan, I don't know how anybody up there would be able to eat healthy. Like it's, it's like $4 an orange, you know, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. Yeah, which I, it's, it's expensive outrageous. for anything. And, but... then, and then, you know, if you have only $4 and you can buy three bags of potato chips yeah. for that versus an orange. And you the, can feed a lot more people with that, right? And the potato chips are always on sale. And they're always three bags for $4 or, <laughs> you know, eight bags for $7. And you can buy 12 cans of pop. Like, there definitely yeah, I think we is... we do need policies. We need, we need, to, uh, we need to stop marketing uh, unhealthy food to children, right? Like, you know, it's... You know, as a mom, I go to the grocery store and, you know, all the unhealthy foods are colorful at eye level for my child to yeah. see and to nag me every time and I go grab. to the grocery store, yeah. right? And um, it shouldn't be like that. It should be the environment needs to change. We need to start changing how we think about food. And there's a lot of policies that can um, can help with that. Um, and I, I think the government has responsibility in making sure that we have policies that enable people to eat healthy and to live a good quality of life and to have access to healthcare. You know, like it's not just about treating things, it's also about prevention. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I think from a weight bias perspective, we could also have policies, right? We could have policies about anti-discrimination policies absolutely. against uh, people living with obesity like it shouldn't be okay for somebody to get fired because they have obesity it shouldn't be okay for them to be denied health care because they have obesity um and those those are policies that we could do at the at the at the policy level at the government level and then also at the institutional levels you know like in hospitals we need to, to do a lot more training to healthcare professionals and educate them about what obesity is and we need to do weight bias sensitivity training yeah. so that they can change their practice. So uh, if you, like I said, if you don't know that you have weight bias, you're not going to do anything about it. But as soon as you find out that, yes, your thinking is a little biased and uh, you do believe this and that, and then, then you start really reflecting at that because healthcare providers, they go into the healthcare field to help people. They don't want to cause more harm. There, a lot of this stuff is happening in an unintended way, I think, because we're not aware of it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think weight bias, as we talked, is probably the most pervasive and most acceptable bias out there. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that people don't even question if people have weight bias. I, yeah, you know, I, I think everybody does, to to a, to an extent at different levels. Oh, yeah. Um, and like every day, I hear fat jokes. Oh yeah, absolutely. I have to make an implicit like in my family. I have to, we have 
very uh, strong discussions about that because I, there is people uh, in my family that have obesity, and um, uh, and I, one of my nephews specifically, he had bariatric surgery a few years ago, but he was bullied all his life for being having excess weight, and you know, and he he's told us stories about how he felt that our family was shaming him, yeah. and how we were some of the perpetrators of this weight bias. And so uh, now that I'm more aware of it, and now that he's shared his experiences with us, we're all trying to change. Um, but it's very difficult because, you know, as soon as, soon as you hear a fat joke, you people laugh. Yeah. Like, we don't even think about it, we just laugh. And so now it's like consciously trying to think, oh my gosh, that is weight bias. We shouldn't be laughing at that. And you know, it's uh, we are helping each other here in my family to try to avoid that. But you know, I go out to anywhere. I can be out for a dinner with a colleague, and a fat joke comes up, yeah. and then you know, it becomes tiring to tell everybody. You know, like, well, actually, you know, that's not funny, and that's weight bias. And then you become kind of like the weight bias police, yeah. <laughs> and people start like, okay, I'm not gonna hang out with her very much. <laughs> well, it's the same as the vegan at the table that everybody's tired of hearing the vegan at the table talk about how we shouldn't eat meat, right? You know, yeah. you don't want to become that person, but you also want to help to create the change that needs to happen because you don't really know, even if that person laughs along, you don't even know what that is, has done to those people. Like, I know that we did that as kids. We all did it as kids. Yeah. You, yeah. You, you, that was supposed to be your way of having social interaction and social connection with people was, you know, you found the one thing about them that made them different and you pointed at it for a while, you know? And, and that's, even, that's, that's exactly what stigma and way bias is, right? Like, Stigma, the root of the stigma is because we have many other diseases that are stigmatized like yeah. HIV AIDS and Absolutely. mental illness. And so I've looked at the research in other areas, but one of the ways that we we uh, we engage in stigmatizing behavior is that we, we try to separate. It's us versus them. Yeah. You know, like you're different than me. And then that gives me power to treat you differently and to treat you unfairly. Um, and then that makes me have higher power and higher status. And so that's why we do it. But if you think about it, you know, we all as humans, just the idea of just existing as a human is about belonging Belong. and being part of some, uh, having somebody that you can um, be, belong with and being, having a community and all of that. And so um, the way bias that kids experience and the teasing and the bullying that just makes it such a traumatic experience that it has consequences for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. For, forever. And like my nephew still talks about his, you know, um, he did attempt to commit uh, suicide oh. uh, at one point because he was so alone and isolated. Um, and that's, that's something that, you know, we need to change because uh, everybody belongs, everybody should belong, and everybody should be respected and treated like, you know, digni dignified human beings. And Absolutely. so that that is why I do it. And that's, you know, I, I have a bias because it affected my family. Um, uh, you know, when he, he attempted to commit suicide, it, it changed everything yeah. for us, right? It, um, and then I did my PhD, which was qualitative, and I talked to many patients living with obesity, and their stories were as horrific or yeah. more horrific than that, um, of the abuse that they've experienced all their lives. And so for me, it's a, it's a human rights issue. It's a, it's a human 
human uh, issue that we as humans, we need to change that. You know, we need to make our world better. Yeah. And we need to have real conversations with people about how they feel about these things. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Especially when it's happening to the people closest to us. Yeah. Like you'd think we'd know. But, you know, know, we've got to make sure we're trying to have those, uh, the conversations, you know, and and not just going with the surface stuff and the surface jokes, because we all bounce the surface jokes back and forth and, and think it's all right. But a a lot of times it's not, you know. And that's when you started the conversation today about how, why you do this podcast uh, and about you trying to connect with people and to discuss ideas. That's very important because I find that we live in a very shallow society and, we just tweet things very quickly and we don't connect with people and we are not um, creating an empathetic world by doing this, right? Like we, we don't share with each other how we're feeling. We don't talk about our vulnerabilities. We don't talk about how we feel. And, you know, I don't want my child, he's 12 years old. I don't want him to grow up like that. I want him to be able to have connections because I know how, Human connections are so important for our health and well-being. Absolutely. Well, we'll end most of this right here. I just have one last thing that I like to do. It's called Read, Watch, and Listen. And I just ask you for one thing that people should read, one thing that they should watch, and one thing they should listen to. Let's start with read. (laughs) Well, I would highly encourage people to go to the Obesity Canada website. All right. As they should, yes. Because there's a lots of information and resources there to learn about what obesity is and to learn about weight bias. Um, what was the second one? Read, watch, and listen. Watch. Um, watch, I would say, the TED Talk by um, Brene um, Brown. Okay, no. yeah, Brene Brown. Yeah. yeah. About vulnerability about and about how we need to... Um, you know, really talk about our emotions and our vulnerabilities and share and to become better people, better to have a better society. And listen. And listen to you. (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) No, it could be anything. It could be music, something that just brings you joy. (laughs) Well, to me, what music brings me joy, but I think just going out there in nature and just listening to nature is cool. the most relaxing thing that I can do. Absolutely. Um, and it brings everything into perspective because we're little, little parts of nature. We're little components of this world and this universe and going out to nature makes me realize that, you know, we are part of this universe and we need to make sure that we stick together. Absolutely. Well, Jimena, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for being a part of the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. If people want to learn more, the Obesity Canada website's the place to go? Yeah, obesitycanada.ca. Perfect. Thank you very much for your time. Have a great day, and, and uh, maybe we'll Thanks. talk to you again soon. Thanks. Thank you, Andrew.